I'm Alan Dean, broadcaster, writer and lifelong Londoner. I first got to know this area in the 1970s. Back then, Clerkenwell was still bustling with factories, workshops and tradespeople. I had no idea of this place's turbulent record past. They tended to avoid teaching us about revolutionaries in those days, rebels who inspired insurrection, but who could also meet a barbaric and bloody end. It all happened right around here, in the very place where you're standing. Where else in London can you discover a thousand year long history of revolution and working class descent? Where William Braveheart Wallace was executed and where Lenin came to plot the overthrow of Tsarist Russia. Now, if you stand with your back to the gardens and trees in the centre of the square, you'll notice a white pillared building in front of you. This is the white stone exterior of St Bartholomew's Hospital, known simply as Bart's. But alongside the caring and compassion was a terrain that hosted a theatre of cruelty. The hospital was founded way back in the 12th century and since then has stood alongside generations of campaigners battling to combat disease, poverty and crime. To the right of the pillars you'll spot a grey marble plaque affixed to the solid arch of the wall above an iron railing. The plaque is dedicated to William Braveheart Wallace who had led the Scots in rebellion against King Edward I England. He'd been charged with treason, and in 1305, right here, he was hung, drawn and quartered, literally chopped into four pieces. Executions like Wallace's continued in this square for another 400 years, with rebels, heretics and nonconformists suffering equally gruesome fates if they challenged the political conventions of the day. Beheadings, burnings and live boilings were commonplace. This is Clerkenwell, once the beating heart of political radicalism and non-conformity. Clerkenwell has been home to charities, social reformers and writers attempting to transform the lives of the poor and the needy. We're going to move on now. Turn around to face a square with your back to the plaque. Just beyond that garden area, a few hundred feet from here, there's a wide building with a great arch throughway at its centre. That's Smithfield's Meat Market, and that's where we're heading. Cross the road towards the railings in front of you. Once you're on the other side, walk to the right of the railings and the men's lavatories and follow the sidewalk round. Clerkenwell is full of old pubs that sell beer, ale and stout. Water was said to be so contaminated in Victorian times that beer was considered a healthier option. To your right is one of those pubs, the Butcher's Hook and Cleaver, appropriately named as you're now heading into the epicentre of London's meat trade. Stop when you reach the bollop, that's a small cast iron vertical post on the pavement. It's up ahead of you. Okay, I want you to cross the road towards the Butcher's Hook and Cleaver as I'm going to direct you to a set of traffic lights to the left of the pub that'll take you into the centre of Smithfield's Market. Turn left by the pub and ahead you'll see another corner where there's a set of traffic lights. I want you to head for that corner. We're going to cross West Smithfield Road, so let's look to the left and to the right. And when you can, cross. As you cross, I want you to imagine it's 3am 
and the market is coming alive. We're going to go inside, but before you do, stay here for a minute to take in the view ahead of you. A vast cathedral-like structure of ornamental cast iron, stone, Welsh slate and glass, and built in 1868 to replace what was once a filthy open-air beast market operating since medieval times. In those days, you'd have to dodge past stampeding cattle, or you might have slipped on their bloody entrails dumped in drainage channels. Charles Dickens wrote in his 1838 novel, Oliver Twist, set here in Clerkenwell. The ground covered nearly ankle deep with filth and mire, a thick stream perpetually rising from the reeking bodies of the cattle and mingling with the fog. This unpleasant environment wasn't only a place for trading meat, it was also an epicentre of antisocial activity, drinking and prostitution, that inspired social reformers and writers pushing for transformation of the space into something better. Now Smithfield has thankfully changed. It's a place full of light and air, consisting of two main buildings linked under a great roof and separated by a central arcade, the Grand Avenue. Walk past the brightly painted purple, green and indigo railings. Keep going and walk straight past an entrance with an elevator. You're going to ignore this entrance, it's the next one you want flanked by two enormous and ornately designed iron doors. It's early morning and the meat market is at its busiest. By noon it'll all be over, the business finished for another day. You should now have spotted the enormous gate entrance on your left. Sometimes after midday this area is closed to the public, but if you're feeling inquisitive follow me inside. If a security guard approaches you and tells you it's closed, just plead ignorance and apologise, and I'll meet you back here. So walk through the gates unless they're locked, in which case wait here by the entrance and let the permanent smell of raw meat fire your imagination as you listen to me inside. Ahead is an entrance marked Gate 9, and underneath is a plastic flat door. Through here is where buying and selling meat actually happens. Head through the plastic flat door and pause for a little while here. I'm on the lookout for the stall of D. Andrad and Son Limited, just two stalls after the entrance. Walk along and you should see it under the sign that bears the Andrad family name. Ah, here we are. So we're at number 26, D. Andrad and Sons Limited. Busy here. Right out at the back. Beyond the counters are the carcasses, and they're hanging from hooks. The hooks are on the ceilings, and the carcasses are sort of dangling by the feet. And, then, and there's rows of them, dozens of dozens of carcasses. It's a busy, busy place at this time. This is the time to find the choice meat at the right price. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Are you Stephen? I'm Stephen. Hello, I'm Alan Dean. Please How are you? Very nice to meet you too. Good likewise. So, what are you up to at the moment? Uh, it's three o'clock in the morning and uh, we're, we're just gearing up. So uh, yeah, we expect a fairly busy day today, midweek. What kind of meat is being sold today? Well, we're primarily carcass traders. So we sell fresh pork, lamb, mutton, a uh, little bit of veal, 
but we sell anything from a single lamb chop to an oxtail to a, a bag of kidneys. We, we sell all sorts. Your family have been here for a, a long time, many generations. Well, I'm a fifth generation, so we go back to 1868, and uh, ballpark figure, it's about 145 years, I think. So your family were here. Yes, father we were. Time, your family were here oh, just yes. before this building was built. Yes, we were one of the, if not the first tenants. Uh, to be on Smithfield and as far as I know we're the only family business left that's had a continuity of uh, father and son through the uh, ages yeah and long may it continue <laughs> do you dream of meat uh, no 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 <laughs> lots of other things to think about but uh, not 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 me I leave, leave leave this at work now we're going to turn back the way we came in back towards gate 9 and through the plastic flat door ahead of you. If you weren't able to come through, hopefully you've stayed near the gate 9 entrance. Meet me there. Okay, once you're back by the little entryway where we came in to meet Stephen, cross over to the other side of Grand Avenue, the street that runs through the centre of the market. You walk right underneath an old Victorian clock. And once you cross Grand Avenue, stop, don't go inside that opposite corridor. Instead, turn left, towards the other main arch, and we'll immediately come across a family of iconic red telephone boxes on the right. It takes me back. <coughs> yeah, the familiar odour of damp and stale urine. A convenient loo for those desperate to go, perhaps after a drink or two at the local pub. But these booze would once have been a lifeline for meat traders phoning through a last-minute order. And guess what? They're not museum pieces. This phone still works. Now keep going towards the other arch, the opposite arch of the one you walk through. Pass four more red telephone booths and head towards the northern end. Meet me outside in the bright light of the street. Quite a relief to be out in the fresh air again. It's no longer early morning and the day beyond the market is in full swing. Turn right out of the market and into Charterhouse Street and continue walking, keeping to the left of the cast iron bollards. Back in the 17th century, this street was an unruly place, violent, drunken, and openly housing dens of prostitution. But it was swept away when this indoor market was built in the late 19th century. Okay, keep walking along the sidewalk walking past the bright yellow bollards. Now you'll see Loading Bay 5 right in front of you. As soon as you pass it, you'll notice that the road splits in two. You now need to cross the road at this point because you're going to take the left-hand turning into what is actually the continuation of Charterhouse Street. The early 1980s red brick office block you can see on the left-hand corner may be ugly but it does helpfully display the street name above its door, 99 Charterhouse Street. I'll meet you outside that building on the other side of this main road. Right, we're now standing outside 99 Charterhouse Street. Walk up this side road, you should be able to see some large black iron gates in the distance. If you'd put in an all-night shift at Smithfield Market, you'd probably be feeling thirsty and making your way to one of the numerous pubs in the area. A little further ahead, there's a pub, the Fox and Anchor, which is open from early morning. 
you'll spot a small sign decorated with a fox and anchor. That's where we're heading. Great, you should be at the fox and anchor now. Don't let two grisly looking gargoyles above the entrance deter you from going inside. But first do look up at the remarkable Art Nouveau tiled exterior with the beautiful depiction of flaming trees and the intricate reliefs above the windows. It was in Clark and Wells pubs like this one that social reformers and political thinkers would have come to discuss and to hatch ideas. We're about to enter the pub. Now if it's empty, you might get stared at. And if it's full, you'll have to push your way through the crowds. But fear not, you're in the right place. Like a true Clark and Welling, I want you to forge your own path and walk onwards to the back of the pub. Push the door open and enter this beautifully preserved late Victorian interior. In fact, the Fox and Anchor harks back to 1756 and was completely rebuilt in this regal style to serve not only the meat men, but also women drinkers, mostly nurses. Don't forget, Bart's Hospital is just around the corner. Keep walking past the zinc bar to the very end of the pub, to the cosy, dark, wooden-panelled snugs, which used to be heated with their own fireplaces. There are three of these snugs in the pub, and they're good places for quiet conversation. If one of the snugs is available, take advantage and have a seat. If not, find an open space anywhere in the bar to pause and take in the pub. It's the early morning and this pub no longer attracts the meat men and porters, but a different kind of customer now. I'm a construction consultant. This is our briefing meeting. And you can see we choose a suitably, um, not private, but a, a location where we can talk. What are you both going to order this morning? Well, we usually have the full English. Uh, well, it's egg, bacon, sausage, tomato, beans, um, toast, uh, I and black pudding, black possibly. Pudding, of course. Yeah. So it's what you need to start. So it's also very good if you've had a, a night before. Why are you here? Why are you drinking at the Fox and Anchor this morning? Um, we're just celebrating a big kind of deadline, so some of us have been working very late, sort of through the night. Yeah. Well, I notice you got a pint of beer at the table. Yeah. You're checking the time now. It's, yeah, um, I, I don't it's quarter past eight in the morning. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> you might want to take a pit stop here and have a drink, or perhaps you're ready to continue on our journey through Clerkenwell. Either way, press pause now and press play again when you're outside the pub. I'll meet you there. OK, we're now outside on the pavement. Turn left and you'll immediately notice those black cast iron gates ahead of you. Walk towards those ornate gates, through the entrance on the left and across a little cobbled alleyway. You'll suddenly enter the ancient domain of Charterhouse Square. This area was the burial ground for victims of a deadly plague called Black Death which killed off over a third of the population of Britain in the 14th century. That led to all sorts of social unrest, culminating in the Peasants' Revolt and a dramatic murder right here in Clerkenwell. Keep walking straight ahead until you reach a red post box. On your left, you should notice a large archway, 
followed by a smaller archway. Just to the right of the smaller archway, on the pavement, is a red post box. Stop when you get to the post box. This is the site of a monastery founded in 1371, next to the burial ground. It's had many roles over the years, including a school, and important for our story, an almshouse or home for retired men who had fallen on hard times. Today, Charterhouse houses 40 such gentlemen. One of them is Mr. Stephen Green. I think it's remarkable you get a community whose average age I think is over 80. For example, you get very few cases of dementia. I think, uh, you know, rubbing along with somebody else and helps old people a lot to keep active and young at heart. To get a better view of the almshouse, step just across the street on the raised crosswalk opposite the post box and stand by the little gate entrance to the park. All those who live in the Charter House and the almshouses are known as the Brothers. Um, and I was just reading, Stephen, that the Brothers were originally those who could supply, and this is in quotes, good testimony and certificate of their good behaviour and soundness in religion. And those who had been servants of the king, either decrepit or old captains, either at sea or land, maimed or disabled soldiers, merchants fallen on hard times, or those ruined by shipwreck or other <laughs> calamity. We may be decrepit, but I don't think for those reasons. <laughs> Do you fit into the criteria? I hope not, but for no. Um, Do you have any family here? Um, oddly enough, I'm the only person here uh, who has a real brother here. I mean, that's unusual. Uh, it's certainly the only case of real brothers here at the moment. Real brothers in a band of brothers. <laughs> Let's leave Mr Green and the almshouses now. Turn left and start walking back towards those same grand black gates as before, with the meat market up ahead in the distance. It's no coincidence that an area like Clerkenwell a hunger for political change was coupled with a strong zeal for social reform. Along with the almshouses are based the headquarters of more recent and world-reaching charitable organisations like Save the Children, which will pass later on. Not only that, but the left-leaning newspaper The Guardian and Observer, who once based in Clerkenwell, and even the Communist Party's very own newspaper, The Morning Star, was once here. OK, as you go through the gates, you'll shortly be passing the Fox and Anchor on your right. In the distance, you'll see the now familiar Victorian arches of Smithfield Meat Market. Clerkenwell has always been an area for putting together new ideas. During the Second World War, one of the huge underground cold stores below the market was used for secret experiments conducted by a molecular biologist. Behind a smokescreen of carcasses, he was mixing ice and wood pulp to create a substance stronger than concrete. The plan was to use it to construct an unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Atlantic. But the project was never completed. You'll soon be arriving at the red brick office block on the right-hand corner that we passed earlier. Continue along the sidewalk as it bears right, approaching some upmarket cafes. Up ahead, you'll soon spot a busy junction with two sets of traffic lights. That's where I'm going to meet you again. And I can't walk through the neighborhood without telling you about how the war left a terrible mark on this area. Let's roll the clock back 70 years and remember March the 8th, 1945, 
when a German V2 rocket smashed into the far west section of Smithfield Market. The explosion was heard all over London. The ferocity of the impact caused the buildings to fall into the massive crater where the railway tunnels ran below. It was market day and the area was heaving that morning because news had spread that a consignment of rabbits, a rare luxury during food rationing, had just arrived that very morning. It was one of the last and worst V2 incidents of the war. Okay, you're now at the first set of traffic lights. I want you to cross both sets of lights and I'll meet up with you again on the street corner on the sidewalk on the other side. Right, we're now on the other side of the road in a place where the cow market once stood. And this, predictably, is Cowcross Street. Take a right up Cowcross Street with the Hope Pub on your left. You're walking away from the meat market. You'll see ahead of you, to your right, a small pedestrian alley, Peter's Lane, which is clearly signposted on the corner. That's where I want you to go. Cross Cowcross Street when you can, taking care with the traffic and continue to head for that pedestrian walkway. Underneath the Peters Lane street sign is another sign for the rookery. I'll meet you there. Right, you should now be standing on the corner of Peters Lane by the sign marked the rookery. It's the name of an upmarket hotel now. Ironic when you consider what this area was like in Victorian times. Rookery is actually a colloquial term from the 18th and 19th centuries to describe a city slum. Look down the length of this narrow lane. I think you could just about sense how claustrophobic and suffocating it would have been in Victorian times. Up this narrow pedestrian street, there were small shops with families living above, often crammed into a single room. The Illustrated London News of May 1847 described the area, with its squalid courts crowded with tattered, sodden-looking women and hulking, unwashed men, clustering around the doors of coarse, low-browed public houses, or seated by dingy, unwindowed shops, frowsy with piles of dusty, rickety rubbish, or reeking with the odour of coarse food. Such vivid articles both sensationalised the poverty, but also drew the radicals and the writers to Clerkenwell to stand up and demand change. Okay, let's walk up Peter's Lane now, with the rookery on the left. And a few paces down the lane, glance up on your left to look at the last brick building in the block, and you'll notice a whole column of bull's heads. Do you see them? A recent addition, an artistic reference to the meat market. Keep walking to the top of the lane, past the black bollard on the pavement. When you get to the top of the lane, passing the London headquarters of Save the Children on your left, you'll get to a little junction. Meet me there, but stay on the sidewalk. Stop here for a while to check out the striking Victorian facade across the road of George Farmelow's lead and glass merchants. Buildings like this one were designed to look respectable in that period. The style reflected the morally good industriousness that went on inside. And here we have Save the Children on our left. The modern day charities, the ones that look like the big corporate businesses, are here because of what happened beforehand. The fact that charity has been here for so long. 
and they are a continuation. Keeping Save the Children on the left, we'll go to the left. There are two streets branching off left here, but we're taking the hard turn onto St John's Lane. Continue walking. We're now in the epicentre of Clerkenwell's artisan quarter, as it was once known. Along St John's Lane, there were furniture makers, ironmongers, watchmakers, and a hive of printers' workshops. Further along this road, you'll spot a couple of references to one of these trades. Cross St John's Lane when you can, so that you're walking on the right-hand sidewalk. On this street, there is still the odd reference to the clock-making traditions. If you look up high on your right, attached to a modern building above a blue arch, is a huge clock. The name of the building even references its past, Watchmaker Court. And further along, a few buildings down from the first clock, there's a charming vintage clock advertising a firm called E. Higgs Air Agency. By the 18th century, these streets were teeming with artisans and craftsmen. Artisans were often employed in the production of goods for the wealthy, yet usually working in poor conditions for low pay. Living and working together in the same neighbourhood added to the close-knit solidarity of artisans, commiserating about what was wrong and imagining a better life. The dial makers, case makers, wheel polishers, enamelers and screw polishers. Keep walking along St John's Lane and ahead of you, you can't miss a giant Tudor arch, now known as St John's Gate. That harks back to Clerkenwell's religious and charitable past. Meet me by the lamppost just before the arch, with Priory House on your left. Okay, you're standing on the cobblestones by the lamppost. Just before you walk under the arch, with Priory House on your left, pause for a while. This structure is the main gateway into the Priory of St John of Jerusalem. Founded in the 12th century, it was a new religious order known as Hospitallers, caring for the sick of all backgrounds. There's a museum on your right as you walk under the arch. We'll meet up again on the other side of the arch by the chain bollards. Okay, now that we're through the arch, continue walking straight ahead to that street just ahead. The Order of St John once dominated this area. In fact, there's another museum of St John up ahead once you've crossed the main road. In 1877, it set up St John's Ambulance Association providing the nation's very first ambulance service. Today, the Order of St John is a charity working on healthcare projects around the world. As you reach the corner, turn right. We're going to cross Clerkenwell Road, but first stop at the last bollard and turn to face a traffic island in the middle of the road. Cross at this point where there's a break in the traffic. I'll meet you at the other side. Okay, walk to your left heading between the red phone box and post box. And then you'll need to cross another cobbled street, this time called Albemarle Way. Up ahead, slightly to the left, you'll see three wide stone steps leading up to a pedestrian area. This is St John's Square. Walk up those steps and soon after, turn to your right. You'll notice a grand entrance with two stone pillars on either side. This is the entrance into the Museum of the Order of St John. If the gates are closed, peer into the gardens or take a seat on the marble benches outside. Walk up the steps through the black iron gate and head to the other arch which leads out to the gardens. I'll meet you there. 
Here we are in the garden. Stroll around the grounds or enjoy a seat on the bench if you like. This is the perfect spot to recall the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 that I mentioned earlier. It may be all peaceful and tranquil now, but this is the place where one of the most dramatic events of the Peasants' Revolt took place. The nation was still reeling from the devastation brought about by the Black Death. Then came the high cost of a war in France and repressive laws including an unpopular income tax called the poll tax. All combined to trigger unrest in rural communities. The Order of St John was a target as the prior or head was responsible for the dreaded poll tax. Armed peasants led by their leader Watt Tyler marched on the capital. Revolution was in the air. The peasants burned down this priory. London was in anarchy. King Richard II and his followers lured the peasants out of the city, promising to meet their demands. In Smithfield, where we began our walk, Watt Tyler was stabbed by the Lord Mayor and then beheaded, which effectively ended the 1381 Peasants' Revolt. Okay, turn out of the garden to the museum, back the way you came and down the steps. I'll meet you back outside in the square. Once you're back in St John's Square, look over to the right-hand corner of the square. You can see a restaurant called the Modern Pantry. Head towards it and turn right once you're past it. After you've turned right, past the Modern Pantry. Up ahead, you'll notice a narrow alleyway. This is Jerusalem Passive. Head straight along it and we'll pause when we reach the end. One of the reasons I find Clerkenwell so fascinating is its sense of ancient London. You feel the fabric and layers of history as you walk. It's a place of extreme contrast. People were murdered and killed for their beliefs here. But this is also where London's first hospital was built and there's a real sense of compassion and hope for a better world. Pause here for a short while before you move on. I remember when I was a teenager, the father of a good friend of mine was a silversmith. He spent his working life just near here, holed up in a small room, grinding away, making silver spoons. I remember visiting a studio in the 1970s. The place looked like a photograph from the 1800s. Recently, I walked past his metal studio, and now it's all gone. The smells, the tastes, you could actually taste the metalwork in your mouth. It's all been replaced by glass and steel modernity. In Clerkenwell, there are still vestiges of how things were, but nothing lasts forever. This is now a world of design studios and baristas, but we shouldn't forget the layers of history just under our feet. Turn to the left and walk straight ahead on the left-hand sidewalk, past some railings where people lock up their motorbikes. Soon on your left, you'll see a dark brown brick building. You're aiming for the red phone boxes further down on the extended pavement on your right. If I'd been an artisan around here in the 19th century, sweating for a crust in the local workshops, or perhaps a butcher at Smithfields, and wanted to discuss and protest about poverty, this is where I'd come. There were loads of coffee houses, pubs and clubs to hold political meetings and organize. Just in front of the phone boxes is an old Victorian horse trough, which like most of its fellow survivors has long since been converted into a planter. 
That's where our next stop is. I'll meet you there. Okay, we're standing next to the old horse trough, in front of the red phone boxes, in the centre of Clerkenwell Green, which the city press in the 19th century termed the headquarters of republicanism, revolution and ultra-nonconformity. The tree-lined pavements hint at what was once a green open space, though as we see, it's not that verdant anymore. Here was a convenient open space for people to congregate. Don't forget, many parts of Clerkenwell were made up of narrow streets. Not easy to hold a large political meeting there. The greatest regular agitation was quite literally universal suffrage, the right to vote. In the 1830s, this was spearheaded by the Chartists, writing here the People's Charter, a six-point manifesto to reform the political system. At this time, only 18% of the adult male population of Britain could vote. The Charter proposed that the vote be extended to all adult males over the age of 21. Look up above at the rooftops surrounding. Illustrations of the period depict the local militant rebels fighting the Metropolitan Police, not only on these streets, but up above on these very rooftops. Arrested demonstrators were tried at the rather conveniently situated Middlesex Sessions House, that smart late 18th century greystone building which still stands straight ahead of us on the far side of the green. It had two courtrooms, accommodation for the judges and dungeons. It was known to be one of the strictest courts in the country. There was even a whipping post outside. And right below our feet are a complex series of tunnels linking prisoners of the court to their eventual fate. Anyway, the People's Charter was not enacted. But Chartism was to foreshadow the working people's political groups of the future and influence further generations of Clerkenwell radicals who would speak in the open air to the masses who flocked right here at the centre of the green. And this green is still used for a special event every year. The May Day Parade has been congregating on this spot ever since May 1890, before marching through the streets of London. There are trade unionists, students, anti-capitalist organisations, accompanied by huge banners and walking side by side to the sound of brass bands. From the area where we're standing, facing the Middlesex Sessions House, I want you to look further down the road on the right. Notice the grand grey building with the bright red door and columns of white blocks running from top to bottom. This is number 37A Clerkenwell Green. Built in 1738, initially as a school for the children of impoverished Welsh artisans living in Clerkenwell. Let's cross the road taking care of traffic. As you approach the house, you'll notice the front door is significantly painted bright red. That's where I want you to stop. In 1903, a man called Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, alias Lenin, arrived in London, exiled from his home country, Russia. Lenin had long admired the working-class revolutionary groups that had fought right here in Clerkenwell. It's no surprise he was drawn here. Here we are, outside the Marx Memorial Library. Now, the official opening hours are from midday to 4pm, Monday to Thursday. It's a small organisation, they're not always open then, and in fact they're often here to let you in during off hours too. 
so it's really luck of the draw if they're here or not. In any case, let's see if we're lucky today. Go ahead and ring the top doorbell. Hang around for a couple of minutes. Let's hope a volunteer is here to come down and let you in. If they're here, tell them you'd like to see what's now dubbed Lenin's Room, the place where Lenin wrote revolutionary articles that were smuggled into Russia in 1903. While you wait to see if they're here, press pause, then press play once you enter the building. But if nobody lets you in, it's okay. Stand here by the red door and let me describe this extraordinary place. I'm inside the Marks Memorial Library. There's a corridor leading towards the left-hand side. And let's go up the stairs. And as we walk up, Communist Party posters, old Russian propaganda posters, there's a notice board showing events like the Socialist Film Co-op and the Red and Green Choir. Big photograph of Karl Marx. Some plates, and these are all marking the miners' strike and the relationship between the miners' union and the left. And I'm going to go to the left up some stairs, another flight of stairs, and there's some doors ahead, and this is the main library, huge fresco on the wall entitled The Worker of the Future Cleaning Away the Chaos of Capitalism, and I'm going to aim to the left now, moving left, walking on, more illustrations, there's exhibition panels, Huge Russian propaganda poster, Lenin leading a, a horde of Russian army soldiers. And then aiming towards the left and down a few stairs through a door. And there's a little office on the left hand side. And right here is a door and there's a big key. And the big key is held by archivist Marion Jump. Hello. Hello there. <laughs> and where are you going to take me to? I'm just going to show you um, the Lenin room, which is where Lenin worked in exile. At the turn of the century, in around 1900, this was home to 20th century press, which was run by Harry Quelch, who's just pictured on the wall here. And he offered Lenin a place to work while he was um, in London during 1902-3. And I see there's a bound volume of Iskra, the spark, which Lenin worked on at this time. That's right. In fact, the editorial board met here. So this really quite small room, would have housed a group of five or six people discussing Russian politics, basically, formulating these articles that were then um, distributed across Europe. And those articles that Lenin wrote for Iskra, what were they about? And they're very much about unifying the kind of Marxist parties in Russia. I mean, this was an illegal publication that people would smuggle you know, up their trouser legs across Europe, meeting different people. Um, in fact, there's a map just outside here that shows the different routes where these people... You know, and looking at bound copies, written in Russian. So this yes, was not right. in English, this was for the Russian mm -hmm, public exactly. themselves. Yeah. We're downstairs where the printing press were pumping away. Um, I'm sure they were all smoking in here and discussing these issues. It would have been very um, intense, you know. Why here? Why did Lenin choose to come here to work? The library is very much in, in the centre of this kind of tr radical tradition in Clerkenwell. Eleanor Marx spoke here. Um, it was where the Social Democratic Federation um, met 
in the late 19th century, for example. So yeah, it's part of that tradition, definitely. We now need to turn back the way we came. Feel free to linger here. There's plenty to see. When you're ready, I'll meet you back outside on the pavement, outside the library. Right, we're outside the Marks Memorial Library. With our back to the red door, turn left. You'll see the Crown Tavern across the side road. In Lenin's day, it was known as the Crown and Anchor. Cross the road and I'll meet you on the other side, on the corner of Clarkenwell Green. Stop briefly by the large window of the pub on your left. It'll give you a great view of the inside of the pub. I'm imagining Lenin drinking somewhere in the far corner over there. Clarkenwell once housed many good breweries, and I bet he would have developed a taste for one of the cheap local ales, as did so many of the area's radicals and revolutionaries who would have drunk in here. With the pub still on your left, start walking again in the same direction, towards a white building you'll see ahead of you. I'm going to meet you on the next street corner, just past the bike lockup on your right, and the gardens and railings of St James's Church on your left. Don't cross the road. Okay, with a garden on your left, take the next left turn. You're now in Seckford Street. Keep to the left-hand sidewalk, walking alongside the railings. Further up, we'll turn left again, but not just yet. Keep walking straight ahead on the narrow sidewalk. The road will soon split in two directions. You need to stay to the left, aiming for the very narrow St. James's Walk, following the railings almost all the way to the end. The corner building to our right was once the New Crippleage, a warehouse and factory, another example of charity in this area. It was here that in 1912 Flower Girls Christian Mission made the pink cotton roses that were sold on the streets of London. They raised the equivalent of several million pounds today for the first ever Alexandra Rose Day, a charity for the sick and needy, and it's still going strong over a century later. As we progress, the narrow street becomes residential, with refurbished Victorian houses on the right, and further along, a yellow brick block of modern flats on the left. Look up ahead as you walk and you'll notice our next stop, the imposing three-storey building behind the wall. Walk all the way to the corner of the street, by the tree, and I'll meet you there. Right, you're standing on the corner, facing the huge three-storey building, now called Kingsway Place. It was once a low secondary school. These days, it houses private apartment offices. Ironically, before the school was built, there had been a series of prisons occupying the site since the early 17th century. First the Bridewell, then the new prison, and from 1847, the Middlesex House of Detention, which was a holding prison for those awaiting trial. It was largely subterranean. I mentioned earlier the maze of tunnels that emanated from the courthouse in Clerkenwell Green. Some led right here. The 20,000 square feet of tunnels below where you're standing served as passageways to take prisoners from the house of detention to the Sessions House for sentencing to meet their fate. Prison, shipped off to the British colonies like Australia or New Zealand, or execution. It wasn't only those political prisoners playing a role in Clerkenwell's rebellions who ended up here. 
It is estimated that roughly 10,000 people a year pass through these gates as Victoria in London, growing even more concerned about propriety, sweat men, women and children, beggars, sheep stealers, radicals, dissenters or murderers into the house of detention, where they could be kept out of sight, tortured and forgotten. Beneath our feet was a murky network of vast catacombs with brick arches soaring over dimly lit hallways and hundreds of prison cells. Today, the tunnels below us serve as spooky looking locations for films and TV shows like the BBC's recent Sherlock series, or attract psychic investigators searching for the ghosts sighted in the vicinity. Cross over the road so that you're up close to the wall surrounding Kingsway Place. The wall is on your right. Walk along the right-hand sidewalk. When you come to a wooden door on your right with a stone surround marked Schoolkeeper, stop there and wait for me. Turn to face the Schoolkeeper's entrance. The white building to the left of the Schoolkeeper's entrance is the only relic of the prison to survive above ground. This was the Chief Warder's Lodge. Okay, sticking to the right-hand sidewalk, keep going straight. Ignore the pedestrian walkway turning into Clerkenwell Close on your right. We pass a cluster of office buildings up ahead. You'll soon come to a small junction. Cross over and just keep walking straight ahead of you. You're now in the main part of Clerkenwell Close. Our final destination is at the very end of this road. In fact, you can probably see the beige brick building straight ahead with a vertical column of windows. The buildings in that cul-de-sac represent a vital stepping stone in the transformation of the area. Meet me on the corner outside the Horseshoe Pub on the right-hand side. That's where our journey ends. The buildings in front of you and to the right make up the Peabody Estate, Clerkenwell Green. George Peabody was an American banker, diplomat and philanthropist living in London, who in his words, wanted to ameliorate the condition of the poor and needy in this great metropolis. From the 1860s, he pioneered social housing schemes to replace the slums. This estate dates back to 1884. There were 11 five-storey high blocks arranged around a central courtyard. The central space also provided a safe playing area for the tenant's children. Rubbish could be put into chutes which sent it to ground level and many estates had shared laundries and bathhouses. The residents were required to sweep the passages and steps every morning before 10 o'clock and took it in turns to clean the laundry windows. Every resident had to be vaccinated against smallpox and records were kept of all cases of infectious disease. Peabody did help to ameliorate the conditions of the respectable working classes of Clerkenwell, but slum housing continued to prevent well into the 20th century. It wasn't until 50 years after the estate was built that socialist local councillors created the innovative Finsbury Health Centre just to the north of here to combat the effects of tuberculosis, rickets and lice found in those living in conditions of squalor. It's fitting somehow that it all happened here in Clerkenwell after so many years of protests for social progress. In his classic 1889 novel, The Netherworld, writer George Gissing captures a positive and inspiring image of radical Clerkenwell. 
I stood, as so often, listening to the eloquence, the wit, the wisdom that give proud distinction to the name of Clerkenwell Green. Towards sundown, that modern agora rang with the voices of orators, swarm with listeners, with disputants, with mockers, with indifferent loungers. The circle closing about an agnostic lecturer, intersected with one another for a premier meeting. The roar of an enthusiastic total abstainer, blended with the shriek of a radical politician. Above the crowd floated wreaths of rank tobacco smoke. In a rapidly changing London, Clockenwell has managed to keep much of its historical character. Though the artisans, silversmiths and watchmakers are no more, the architects and graphic designers that dot the area hark back to those earlier creative trades. And these pockets of social housing, like the Peabody, have their roots in social reform, the legacy of a hunger for change. Thanks so much for walking through Clerkenwell with me and for remembering its rebellions, but also its compassion and hope for a better world. <laughs>